Welcome to the Theology of the Buddy podcast, episode 4. In a special Christmas edition, we are calling Catholic Creatives Corner. Merry Christmas, everybody! Today on the podcast, YouTube creator Billy Griffith of the popular channels of Catholic Word of the Day and OK Catholics joins me to discuss the penitential nature of Advent, the struggle of infertility, and the impact of good art on the soul. The Advent penance strife is over, my friends, so pour yourself a Christmas whiskey and enjoy the podcast. Thank you very much, uh, Billy Griffith, for joining us on the Theology of the Buddy podcast, uh, Catholic Creatives Corner. How are you doing, my friend? Yeah, I'm doing really well. Thanks for inviting me on. I love the name, by the way. Like, Do you? <laughs> Becky, uh, Becky saw uh, the post on Facebook and was like, Theology of the Buddy is genius. Like, <laughs> it's so perfect. It's so perfect. It 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 kind of came about tongue in cheek with uh, the group of us because the other the other guys Matt and Aaron they 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 have some some significant criticisms about the theology of the the body and so but oh. you know but we were joking about that and I was like well what about the theology of the body and they're it somehow stuck and we decided to make a podcast out of it so it's perfect it's perfect for like <laughs> especially a Catholic podcast it's like. <laughs> Just very, very clever. Very. I'm a little jealous that I didn't think of it before. <laughs> so that, that's great. That's great, man. Like it, it, it's an interesting experience because we just get together and we'll have a couple whiskeys and then we're just like, like let's do this, <laughs> and then we yeah. go right into it. <laughs> man, I can't very, tell you how how bad I wish I had a drink right now, but yeah, it's Advent, so yeah. So that really that's. A, I was going to say that's actually kind of why I reached out to you in the beginning because I, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I was, you know, scrolling through my, my feed on YouTube and lo and behold, here's Billy Griffith getting on his uh, soapbox again, talking about how we're doing Advent wrong. And I, I just was like, oh man, I need to get, get Billy talking about this. Cause you don't really see a lot of, uh, a lot of younger Catholics really kind of understanding that, that are outside of kind of like majorly trad circles. So right. like what what is your your take on on this whole advent being penitential thing? It's just that advent is penitential. It's a penitential season and that's a hill I will die on. Like I don't <laughs> I don't care what our current code of canon law says. Like I historically and liturgically um, it has been penitential and liturgically it remains penitential mm. and uh it's especially evident in the readings during the advent season um it's not as pronounced this year i think what cycle are we in cycle b maybe um i'm not sure what cycle of readings we're in but i remember last year the cycle of readings were very very strong like in terms of thinking about repentance and sorrow because of the coming of the savior and you're just like yeah but the church teaches this is a season of joyful anticipation i'm using air quotes right now for yeah, anybody yeah. who can't see joyful anticipation <laughs> and i'm just like nobody in their right mind looks forward to the second coming of Christ as judge of this world with joyful anticipation. Yeah. <laughs> even even the greatest saints uh, look forward to the second coming with great fear and yeah. <laughs> great trepidation. In fact, yeah. what was it? it? Was It was the gospel, I think, for the first Sunday in Advent when Jesus is talking about the second coming. And he says, many will die of fright when this happens. And I'm like... Yeah, joyful anticipation. <laughs> am I right? Like it's just it's bizarre and it's yeah, it's it totally like is. it's and I think it's partially because of the culture we live in. I mean, it it is a joyful season. We are looking forward to uh the feast of the nativity of Christ, like his birth, you know? And that is a joyful event. The Mary carrying the the savior of the world in her womb. And then giving birth to him, that is a universe-changing event um, across time. It, it affected all of creation. And it is a joyful thing, but 
historically speaking, the church has always preceded their times of great feasting with periods of great fasting in preparation for that feast. And it wasn't too long ago that, I mean, Advent was 40 days long. Um, it started on the Feast of St. Martin, I believe. Martin. Yeah, Martin, yes, yeah. Yeah, Martin Miss. And then, um, you know, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays were days of uh, abstinence and fasting. Um, then you had Ember Days that were a thing after, I believe, December 13th. Um, Mondays, yeah. Wednesdays, and Fridays, those were mandated yeah. days. Yeah, it's starting tomorrow is the Ember Days. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. There you go. And then, I mean, the, the, our calendar is so short this year. You know, yeah. we have we have the fourth Sunday of Advent, and then hey, it's the Vigil of the Nativity. So yeah, it's like exactly. Um, exactly. But yeah, so like just the the historical and liturgical traditions of the church um, have really punctuated Advent as maintaining that penitential character. I'm not sure. Why it changed, um, I, I can't find many documents on it, but the caveat is I'm not a liturgist and I'm not a, a historian in, in church um, history. So I know that it was officially pronounced in 1983 when the Code of Canon Law was released. I know um, Pope Paul VI, I believe, addresses it in Penitamini um, just briefly, but you know there are documents before that that have to have commentary on why it was changed, and I, I don't know why that is. Any canonists that are listening, please feel free to, to write in to Theology of the Buddy and let us know. <laughs> that's right, that's right, yeah. Yeah, Dr. Edward Peters, is, you know, hit us up. <laughs> hit us up. Oh, for real, I love Dr. Edward Peters. Canon Law Blog? Yeah. That is legit. I love his stuff. Yeah, he's he's so great. He's so great. I um I was just actually looking at the, the missile, like one of the missiles that we use um, for for the Latin mass and it what in it, it says um, regarding the season of Advent, it says in a spirit of penance and prayer, we await the mediator, the God man preparing for his coming in the flesh and also for his second coming as our judge, the masses for Advent strike a note of preparation and repentance mingled with joy and hope. Hence, although the penitential violet is worn and the Gloria is omitted, the joyous Alleluia is retained. So I mean, like oh, yeah. for for mm-hmm. us, it's 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 a no brainer. Like we, like for those of us who who attend the Latin Mass, it immediately becomes really penitential. Like you know, we're talking mm-hmm. about what our what our penances are going to be for Advent. But like, yeah, and that's that makes such a difference too. Like, does. in in Lent, like you you have that that universal. Right. Yeah. I mean, even though the the Eastern churches are like way more hardcore <laughs> than the Western so churches are, yeah. they're they're like <laughs> above and beyond. They are they are like just searching for this level of sanctity that I I cannot hope to reach in this lifetime. But <laughs> in in the Western church, when you or in the Church Universal, really, you have that period of Lent. There is something very special about having community. Uh, in sharing that penitential season together because you are journeying through Lent together with a very pronounced uh, idea of penance. And you're like, yeah, what are you giving up for Lent? What are you doing? Like, we know we should be actively doing something. But with Advent, it's like, yay, Christmas parties, here are cookies, here's sugar, here's drinking, here's like, here's all this premature celebration before the feast it's and it really takes away from the heart of what advent is i mean when you i I think about it in terms of pregnancy even though that's not something that becky and i have a lived experience of just this idea like yeah there's excitement behind it but also there's not premature celebration like you don't celebrate a birthday before the birth of the child (laughs) you know it's it's a a period of preparing and that means clearing a space in your house. You are now like caretakers of this new soul. So you have to make life changes. You have yeah. to make sacrifices. You have to do all of these things to prepare for the coming of that child in your own life because guess what? You're stuck with them for 18 to 30 years. And, you know, y- you just have to prepare for that. And in Christmas time, it's just 
almost an irresponsible celebration because it's like it's not our kid you know we're not yeah. we don't have to take care of it. but it, like so there's no concept of making room in our hearts for jesus christ to come and reign within us it, yeah. it, there's no sense of that for the nativity his present coming in the eucharist or the preparation for his second coming at least in the parishes i've gone to and i've attended like nobody has touched on those themes in the slightest yeah it's 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 unfortunate like i think it really does give a whole different character uh, to your preparation for advent or for for christmas mm-hmm. to be able to to you know give something up and and you know lay down you know your wants and desires to prepare for that that time when christ comes for sure mm-hmm. now your whole experience with kind of coming to this it, it was triggered by father mike schmitz right right like he, right so so what what was his what was his shtick about advent you know uh, if you'd asked me a year ago i could probably give you a better synopsis because that's <laughs> when i stumbled upon his video but all i remember is what i took out of that video where he repeats advent is not a season of penance and i was just like i have to challenge that mostly because it's clickbait and i can use like if i <laughs> if i mention him and i use a clip from what he says i can put his face in the thumbnail and that's right i mean that will hopefully attract views and it has it's my number one viewed video so oh really um, okay yeah, yeah yeah it's got almost ten thousand views now so <laughs> i'm like that's really happy awesome. for that so and that's then the, awesome. the one that i just released the views go up like every single day because it's a follow-up and I have more information this year, and I used yeah. Father Schmitz's face again. So <laughs> I love awesome. you, Father Schmitz, but uh, I you're wrong, and I, I tell you the truth because I love you. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, like 2,000 years of church history does not trump the last 60 years. Like, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and canon law is not the end of all church teaching, too. Like, the documents that exist – uh, explaining what Advent is carry with them a legal weight as well. Um, and I think because, I think for many reasons, and I think Dr. Ed Peters would agree with me to a point, here's my armchair canon lawyer. Um, <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> that the 1983 Code of Canon Law is in desperate need of revision, and uh, especially in some very key areas to just be have a clear language, even though it, it is in Latin, Latin is very clear, Um in, in the 1913 Code of Canon Law, like if expressly forbid vernacular translations because of that, you know, um, I think there's there's a need for a revision. Um, yeah. But uh, there's also some very legitimate considerations that would prevent a revision at this period in our history. So <laughs> that's all I would say on that. <laughs> yep, yep. Now, um, one of the other things that you you touch on quite a bit on your your channel um is is the topic of um you and becky's experience with infertility um and that's something that that my wife julia and i share quite closely with you guys is our struggle with uh we've had multiple miscarriages and and though the though the experience is different um i do see a lot of similarities but I wanted to, in in particular, to ask you a couple questions with regards to your experience as a husband. What what has it been like for you, as a husband, going through the process of trying to figure out what's going on physically with your wife and 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 trying to see if there is any possibility of being able to to conceive. Yeah. Uh... If I could sum it in one word, my experience has just been failure. It feels like failure because so many reasons. Naturally, as man and woman, you know, we are meant to come together and to participate in that co-creative act that will bring forth a new life. And the church teaches and elevates this to such a level that it is a sacramental union between man and woman. And that is the greatest reverence that the church can give to the sexual act and to the union of man and woman in marriage. And to be able to express that marital love is in itself a very beautiful thing. But the difficulty is 
when you don't see the natural fruits of it come forth. And the natural fruits of it would be would be children. And in fact, that's what the church teaches. That's what the church has taught for a very long time. And that's what the church really ramped up her teaching on, particularly in 2008 and 2008 and 2011 in America, at least. Uh, and those are because we had certain referenda going through legally regarding gay marriage and same-sex attraction. And there was much catechesis on those things. But the catechesis was to the point where it it really did not explore natural law in its most um, pure understanding of, of everything. Because you can't really, without a certain philosophy degree, explain like the, the real depths of natural law in terms of the sexual act. Um, but it, it really hyper-focused on marriage is for children. It focused on it so much that, like, everything else was kind of forgotten. Like, yeah, it's also for a union, but it's for children. Like, marriage is for children. That's why you have to be against this. And even though those things might be true, it's, it's sacramentally, when you can't experience that yourself, it's it's almost an inversion of what the church teaches or, or a an imbalance of what the church teaches to the point where you forget about the infertile, even though you can make the natural law argument. Well, of course the infertile could get married because of these reasons. Yeah, but that's that's fine, but we still struggle from the grief of infertility because we want to propagate children. You know, We want to bring new life into this world. We want to participate in that co-creative act of God most perfectly by actually creating life. And when you can't do that, and people see that you can't do that, uh, there is just a weight to that cross that I don't think many people understand. Yeah, I, I totally understand what, what you're saying there. And in, in my case with Julie, I know that especially like among other married couples there's almost this isolation that i feel from them too and that mm. um, mm-hmm. and and it almost feels like they don't like we don't have that point of reference of like having actual kids and so you know even at some of the you know community events that i've been at there are specifically married couples that don't talk to julie and i but they'll yeah. But mm-hmm. they'll talk to the other married couples like right immediately, you know yeah. what I mean? And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you know, and you're not sure if they're somehow like saying behind your back like, oh, are they contracepting? Are they, you know, doing these kinds of crazy things? Yeah. You know, you're you're not sure what's being said. And yeah, yeah. So have you've experienced that isolation as well? Very much so. Um, we've actually had a clergyman approach me. And ask some very involved and invasive questions because everybody feels like they have a right to this knowledge for some reason. Um, he asked, "Hey, how long have you been married?" You know, that's a very common question. You know, that's that's fine. I say six years. He's like, "Oh, what's the problem? Where are your children? You know, contraception is a sin." Like that was his his first response to me, and I I'm a person who's coming from a background of more than eight years in youth ministry, um, very much making an effort to remain faithful to the magisterium in all my teaching and in my daily life. And this man obviously doesn't know me or know my history, but to still to jump to that conclusion for a person he's just met, and then to make that accusation was so hurtful. I still carry that wound with me. So I don't have to wonder if people are asking, hey, are they contracepting? I have that validated by the way this clergyman approached me. Yeah. And so that's that's hurtful. But you're very right in that it's isolating because people don't seem to know how to talk about it. And it's it's on on the one hand, it's fair, I think, because there is a 
different season of life that a married couple with children can share with another married couple with children. You can share the same highs and the same lows, the joys and the sorrows, because you're like, hey, hey, my kid did this. Did you ever have a hard time with your kid doing this? Like, I can't, you know, all this stuff. And that's that's fine. That's a point of connection. That's a point where they can feel closer to each other and more in unity with one another. And when they approach another married couple and they cannot share that, they just don't know how to connect. You know, it's almost like, they don't know how to talk to other people like as people. Instead, they have to talk to you as father and mother, not as yeah. husband and wife or yeah. Chris and Julie or Billy and Becky. Like they they can't or they maybe they might be capable of at a later date. But at the moment, they're unable to because they're just kind of taken for a loop. Like they don't know how to react to that. Yeah. Um but on the other hand, it's like, hey, I'm a human person with my own interests and likes and dislikes. <laughs> and my world, I'm sorry, does not revolve around children. It revolves around – I'm trying to make it revolve around God and getting my wife to heaven. And like I want that always to be primary even if we do have children. And I don't care if that's a naive concept. Like I want to make that a priority. Um, but it's – yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, it's isolating for sure. Um, it's just tough. You know, because you don't fit anywhere in the spectrum. Like, I'm part of a young adult group here, and that's very difficult because you've got all these single 20-somethings that are together, which is in a very different season of life than a married couple. And then you have these married couples that have children, but you don't – You don't. there's no in-between. There's no married without children. It's always like – and if they, if it's married without children, it's because the wife is currently pregnant. So it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like there's there's nothing. We don't fit in with the 20-something singles. We don't fit in with the married, the young married couples with children. We're just kind of on the outside, and people look at us weird when we go to movies that are for kids or, you know, we go to Disney World as two adults and don't have children with us, you know? We just we, – we try to enjoy what we have. That's right. Yeah, no, I I know exactly what you're saying with regards to that isolation. I had a, I even just had a, a recent encounter with a priest who, um, like my wife was hanging out with a friend of ours who, um, she has a um a little boy and, uh, she was just talking to him in the in the little crib thing and, um, the priest walks by as Julie's you know, talking to this little baby and says to, uh, says to me, Oh, I think she might be hitting that something, Chris. Uh, and just like, I'm like, what? And then he just kind of walked what? away. What does that even mean? <laughs> like you're, yeah. Like she, because my, my wife is, is playing with the baby. That means she's hinting at me that she wants to have a baby now. And that that's on me to make happen. Okay. Like, geez. Nah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's when you like grab him and be like, "Well, no shit, father. Like, we, <laughs> yeah. we've been trying for X many years. Where have you been?" Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, exactly. you can bleep that in post. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know if you guys want cursing or not on your podcast. We're, but... we're okay with it. We we oh. definitely drop some <laughs> once in a while. Um, yeah. So, I guess yeah. Like, it's it's such an interesting experience. What would you, what would you say? to couples who have children um because you and i i know we're not the only ones experiencing kind of what we what we've experienced i mean we've i don't know if, if we we have a mutual friend or not she both she went she went to franciscan with us um, mm, but she mm-hmm. she and her husband are struggling with um with infertility and miscarriage and stuff like that and like mm. um she's she's experiencing that too and that isolation what what would you say to couples who have kids who you know may have like a you know another set of friends who's a couple who who are struggling with infertility or or miscarriages or or whatnot what would you know what what would help them to help that other couple feel less isolated right well i would first point out that the CDC in the United States, that's the Center for Disease Control, points out that one in eight couples struggle with infertility. So the chances are very, very high 
that you know someone who is struggling with infertility and to recognize that it's far more common than people think. But to also recognize that, you know, this is completely Billy opinion land. I really am convinced that couples who struggle with infertility, and I'm always going to call it a struggle, they are struggling with grief. And just like, you know, if somebody experienced the death of a loved one, you don't approach them and say, oh, well, aren't you just glad that they're in heaven or you know any anything like that you can you can say that like with the best intentions but that is not what the person needs to hear in the midst of their pain is is recognizing that like because this is so closely related to grief because it is a, a grieving that we suffer that we really just need people to try to relate to our pain you know, where, where we are. And it's not always painful. Like we're not constantly walking around with a pall over us thinking, oh, we're infertile and we can never get pregnant. It's, it just comes and goes in waves, but you never like, it's easier to say like what not to say, you know, which we actually have a video on the top five things not to say to infertile couples. And it's like, don't say, you know, keep praying and God will give it to you, you know, or God wants you to have a child. I know that he does and he's going to give it to you. And like, because nobody knows the mind of God. Nobody knows God's eternal will from the very moment of his act of creation and from his very action as being um, like what his will is. Like, we know that he wills our salvation, period, end of line. That's it. We don't know how that salvation is going to be achieved. And so it could very well be God's will that we never have kids. And in fact, that's more comforting for me to hear than keep praying or try this milk dust we got from Jerusalem. It's where Our Lady was breastfeeding and, you know, if people have been cured of infertility or here's some Fatima water. Just add this to your coffee and it'll heal you. Like, no, we've tried all those things. We've tried those things for years and nothing has happened. You know, we've tried essential oils. We've tried, you know, apple cider vinegar. We've tried like all these other homeopathic remedies and nothing has worked. And it could be because God's will is that we do not have children and we learn how to live as husband and wife and learn how to be fruitful in that capacity and learn how to lead each other to heaven. So what to say to other couples is you know, sometimes you don't say anything at all. You have the wisdom not to say anything at all and just love people where they are and for who they are. You know, infertility does not define us. It doesn't define who we are. It's it's where we are right now. It's something we suffer through, but it doesn't define us. And so, you know, if if it is brought up because we feel we have the opportunity to share that part of our life with somebody because it should be our choice to share that part of our life and not somebody else's, you know, invasive questions. Then to say, you know, the best thing to say is I can't understand, but that must really suck. And I'm here if you ever want to talk about it. And that's it. Like, that's really all we need to hear. Other than that, it's like, you know, Hey, did you see the new uh, Spider-Man movie? That looks <laughs> awesome. You know, like, because we have other interests and other passions and things beyond our infertility that we're interested in. You know, just love us as persons with these complex feelings and emotions and interests. Yeah. I, I don't know. Becky is better at having a response for, you know, what to say to people. It's, it's, for me, it's, I don't want to talk about it with you unless I bring it up. And like, if you feel uncomfortable, like, don't like, I'm, I'm a, again, it's just, it's just loving the person where they are. You know, if you don't have to feel guilty because you have kids and I don't, that's something I would say, do not feel guilty because you might have children and we do not because we love children. We love kids so darn much and we, that's why we want them, you know, but like, I love being around happy families. I love being around kids. Like I have some very close friends and I'm, I'm their Their kid loves me and I love it. I love the attention I can give to that kid. I can be the fun uncle and I can get them all excited and I can give them sugar and then send them home to mom and dad where they have to deal with all the <laughs> dirty stuff. 
I don't have to deal with changing the diaper. I don't have to deal with the kid writing on the wall. You know, I don't have to deal with the kid breaking my Nintendo Switch. I just have to deal with the kid in the fun moments, you know, and that's that's kind of a blessing, right? You know? <laughs> yeah, that makes sense, man. Like that's kind of our experience too. It's like we've got we've got a lot of close friends who who have kids and they all of their kids call Julie and I, you know, Uncle Uncle Chris and Aunt Julie, you know, and and we have that kind of really close relationship with them where we can call them up and say, hey, you know, do you do you want us to take, you know, Evie for a day? We can we can do that for you. You know, gives gives them a break from you know having to take care of the kids and yeah. they can go out and have a date night and well, you know, and we get we get to spend time with with kids and that's fun yeah. too you know so i mean there are there are different ways for for us as couples to be able to find ways to not in the literal sense be fruitful but but you know in other ways to be able to give and pour out love on on other people you know and, mm-hmm. and on children so um yeah no that was that was what i wanted to to ask you with regards to that um you know because i know that it's, it's something that you guys really like you guys are really one of the big, big voices right now, at least from what I see. And I've got, hey, you know, I've got, a, I've got a limited view, but I mean, the fact that you guys do so well at articulating it and and expressing what that what it's like to go through it, um, yeah, it's 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 been really informative too. Like there there have been a lot of things that, like as a Canadian, I take for granted you know one of those things is the additional struggle of the financial burden that it would put on on like you guys Mm -hmm. to go through the process of things you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um we we have to pay for every doctor's visit and every ultrasound every vial of hormones uh all the pill like everything it's like literally tens of thousands of dollars over the many years um, that we've we've had to sink into this because we desire it so desperately you know so it's it is it's it's an added burden but it's like as an American it's just like well what did I expect you know we don't have socialized medicine or healthcare which <laughs> it's all a big scam from insurance companies and they've got the the hold on the government right now. So what are you going to do? Nothing, nothing's going to change anytime soon. Yeah. No, exactly. We could move to Canada. Uh, that'd uh, be fun. Maybe, maybe, you know, <laughs> it might be a lot colder here though, for you guys, you may just want to move right back afterwards. Yeah. We don't want to move, uh, above the Mason Dixon line. We, we want to stay <laughs> in South, South United States. So. Yeah. Where are you again? I'm in North Carolina. I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. In Charlotte, North Carolina. That's awesome. Now, I wanted in particular ask you about your experience with um, with design and and the importance of good good design and art in the church mm-hmm. right now. Because I one of the things I just love about your channel is like I love that you you really try to make cool graphics and like <laughs> you'll and and like you'll get on the you know on everybody for just being like. You know, you need better sound. Just get yourself a lavalier mic and make yourself sound better. Like, oh, seriously, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's something that I, I I've always really respected about you. Um, but I wanted to ask in particular, like, why does the church suck so much at like design and and like actual like making good art in in modern times? Like, do you do you have an opinion on that? A Billy opinion land on that? I have a very, very strong opinion about it. So I have to be very (laughs) careful with how I word this. Um, Well, first I would say, before I I comment on that, it's a comment on the quality of good art and good media, really. So whether that's in podcasting or whether that's in vlogging or even video production, so like the professionally Hollywood-style film uh people think people tend to think that we have an obligation to support a media endeavor just because it is christian or or catholic in nature 
And that is not necessarily true because it can be bad art. And when it is bad art, we should rebel and revolt against it and challenge the artists to be better. Because 99% of the time, those Christian Catholic films are horrible. They're terribly acted. (laughs) The director of photography has no idea what they're doing in terms of framing a shot for cinema. Audio is off. It just the story is riddled with plot holes. The story is really just a a vehicle to tell a moral, you know, parable. Like, and it has no no meaning beyond that. There's no artistic meaning beyond that. There's no story. It's just here is a moral parable, and here's a story we're gonna frame around it because abortion is evil, or divorce is bad, or you know you should stay married because of the love dare. Like all those things <laughs> might be true, but you can be very very bad at explaining why that is. Like not everybody should go into film because like it's. It, I get so worked up about that. So I, I would – yeah, to, to be uh, more precise in my language, we do not have an obligation to support any media endeavor simply on the grounds that it is Catholic or it is Christian because it can still be bad art regardless of its Christian or, genes- or, or Catholic in its genesis. Right. Um, why the church is so bad at it, I think – oh, my goodness – I, we should clarify why the modern church is more is yes. bad at it because yeah. <laughs> she hasn't I, always been this one. Right, you're correct. <laughs> like it, the church used to be, in a very real sense, the custodian of beauty, and she still is, in a in a certain degree. But in today's world, I think, and I have no historical or artistic, uh, you know, criticism. Uh, criticism to back this up with but i think it's because of like due in large part of the industrial revolution and just the fact that we were able to begin producing mass art and we could produce structures and buildings so quickly and so cheaply and because things there was this mental shift somewhere along the line with the church that the institution of the church needs to be producing these things at a cheap cost because, you know, it's the church. You know, even though we're always asking for money, we never seem to have enough of it to do what we want to do. And so we always have to go to the lowest bidder. And in fact, I know that's the policy for many dioceses across the United States that if you are going to construct a new parish building, and you want to do something very beautiful and ornate and something that will last for centuries, well, that's too bad because you are obliged to go to the lowest bidder because you don't decide, the finance council decides, and the finance department decides. So you have people who are not artists and who are not invested in good art or in beauty in general. They're invested in the bottom dollar. They're invested in what makes the church money and what is going to cost the least amount to do for the most amount of work. And that's part of industry. And I think that idea has crept into the institution of the church and poisoned the well of the church. That's why it's so difficult to fund good art for the church. Now, there are some priests out there that really try their hardest, and God bless them for it. We have a local parish who has just installed a uh, baldacchino in their main sanctuary, and it is absolutely incredible. It is so beautiful. But they had to fund it first. And getting your parish on the same side as you in terms of a beautification project when you're already asking for a weekly tithe and then the diocese is asking for a second collection for God knows what every week for months – you know, you have to then convince your parish that beauty matters, and this is why we need to fund this. And I have seen some beautification projects done, but they're very small scale, you know. Um, so I think industry is really um, a big, big reason we no longer support good art. And we don't have 
people who love beauty in positions that make these determinations in the diocese and in parishes. It's, it's so unfortunate. Like um, a, a good uh, a good friend of mine, he just wrote a, a blog um, about the fact that there's a, a parish in Ottawa, Ontario, um, beautiful, like classically beautiful parish. You know, it's got high altars and all of that. And instead of using this beautiful parish, they shut it down, sold it to the highest bidder, um, and that now it is a banquet hall, still uh. with still with the high altars intact. Oh my goodness! So you know, and so like he shared these this picture of like the of what it looks like now, and I mean they do they'll do was wedding. the altar stone at least removed? No, because it's supposedly what? A, yeah, supposedly because it's a historical site, and that would be removing its historicity. So like, isn't that sacrilege? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's painful. That right? is painful. But but so here's the interesting thing. So this was one of the things he was he was kind of saying in his blog was the fact that one of the the situations with that selling of that of that parish was that they put in a stipulation it cannot be sold to another church group and included in particular the SSPX because the SSPX oh. were looking at it because oh. they wanted it. So, so instead of letting them use it for their, you know, masses. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they would rather you go in there and, you know, do God knows what, you know, in the yeah. presence of a first class relic and and consecrated walls and all of that and right. I can't remember, yeah. I can't remember what the the name for like when a church is deconsecrated, but it it oh yeah mm. there it's an intense word and yeah look it up I'm I can't remember but <laughs> needs to um, happen at this parish oh my goodness yeah. that's that's sacrilege that is that's a shame that yeah. is a shame but that but then at the same time they have this parish and then. Then they make a brand new one with, you know, cement block walls and a cement altar and a cement ambo, you know, and it it's ugly as hell. Like, mm. you know what I mean? Like, why would you do that? So, you know, do you do you think that there is also within the church forces that are against the beauty and reverence and um yeah, and just like the the honor due to Christ within the you know within the church itself, the church body. Oh yeah, I think there's definitely a spiritual element in in all that we do. Um, in particular, when we try to focus on the those three transcendentals, you know, the true, the good, and the beautiful. There's always going to be an inversion of those things, and boy, have we seen so many ugly things come out that the church has produced and supported in her artwork like the logos for world youth day for the past like three or four world youth days or maybe all of them i don't know um we have a local abbey that after the second vatican council was completely gutted and replaced this beautiful high altar and this beautiful basilica artwork with like rod cast iron grates of modern artwork and a modern crucifix that are just hideous you know so the generation that supported these things i cannot fathom what they were thinking but they weren't thinking about philosophically they were not thinking about truth and goodness and beauty and it's not like i do not think the devil's plan is to get people to love the ugly like because we are not naturally attracted to ugliness we are naturally attracted to beauty because it is beauty but to make beauty not a priority to say well so and so is donating this but it has to be used for this specific thing and we need the money so we're going to take it and we're going to make this ugly thing for them because they have no concept of good art or the bottom line is we have to do what is cheapest and most effective. We cannot do, you know, something that is uh, beautiful. You'll have to do that at a later date. You know, it's just an inversion of priority, and it's beauty is no longer priority. It's 
it's not even it's it's something that's not even thought about i think it's just when you're working with a development team you're just you're thinking something completely different yeah yeah it's true it's true there's a parish that's here in town that uh unfortunately had its its roof cave in uh probably 15 years ago or so and like I was sitting there with, you know, bated breath, like, oh, man, like, here's your chance. It was one of those ugly parishes. I'm like, here's your chance. Right. You can, you can do this right. You know, just take that insurance money. Nope. They just decided to rebuild the exact same ugly church. Oh. Afterwards. I'm like, come on. Oh. <laughs> well, so you've got a finance committee that helps make that decision. And people, yeah. again, who don't have that as a priority, it's just. It's a sad thing. And then when you see priests who do have it as a priority, how much their heart shatters when yeah. they have to try to get approval for something and they can't because they don't have the funds for it. On the flip side of that, I have seen many parishes and many attempts to it, for these beautification and restoration projects. And I have seen churches turn into something to be proud of. Um, I've also seen the inverse of that in churches completely gutted and turn into something hideous. And I, you know, I don't know who made the quote, beauty will save the world. But if, if anything, you know, God who is, is goodness and truth and beauty itself. I, I do think beauty will save the world. I think beauty is the most naturally attractive thing to a person. And that if nothing else will draw them to the church, it is the beauty that the church is custodian of. But you've got to be very selective with where you look. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah. you're going to be in a, in a pit of despair. Yeah, it's true. Now, for, for you, like, um, are, you, are you part of a parish that, that really kind of cherishes beauty and, and whatnot? Or is, is it kind of a mixed bag at that parish? I'm part of a parish. I, I would say it's, they definitely appreciate beauty. Um, and that expresses itself liturgically. Uh, they have invested heavily in the music department for this parish, and it's almost always Latin, almost always flawless in its execution. The choir is just breathtaking in their talent, and the organist is just fantastic. You can't find organists at this caliber in many places. However, uh, it does struggle with visual beauty in that there has been long-term water damage in the back of the church that hasn't been repaired because they don't have the funds for it. You know, the, the structure is still sound and intact, but the entire back wall has all this water damage and it's just coming apart and it looks hideous. The altar itself has been gutted and redone with every installation of a new bishop because the bishop decides. And so like it's it looks completely barren because the bishop's prior did so much and so many drastic changes that it's now difficult to do anything else besides tear what they did out, which needed to be torn out because it was terrible. Um, like one bishop actually took the marble altar rail that they had and they took that out and they put like the rails behind the altar like on top of each other to make them look like pillars and it looked terrible it looked hideous but he thought it looked <laughs> great and when the bishop says do something you don't say well no bishop this is a bad idea he says i'm the bishop i don't care what you think you're gonna do what i say you know <laughs> because that's just the way things are done and so thankfully that's been removed and the altar rail has been reinstated but still you know it's 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 hard to do anything. So on the one hand, they they do musically, yes. Uh, visually, not as much. And that's what I've found in many places, unfortunately. Do you do you find that the the beauty of the liturgical music and the way that the priest celebrates mass at your parish, like does that draw younger people to your parish? Ooh, does it draw younger people? I could say it drew my wife and I. For sure. We actually made the choice to go to this parish because of the liturgy and because of the music. 
because, well, one, it utilized Latin far more than any other parish in the area, and the choir was so, so good. Um, there was one other parish that was close because they use Latin in the liturgy itself far more often and host these high Latin masses frequently, and the parish itself is very visually stunning. This is one of the parishes that went through a beautification project, but the choir just wasn't as good. <laughs> it really, yeah. it really wasn't. It was good. It's not, it's not a bad choir. It's just not as good as the parish that we chose. And my wife wants to sing, so she's a part of this choir now, and she's adding to that beauty. Does it attract young people? In my experience in youth ministry, yes. Beauty attracts young people very much so. Um, oftentimes, it begins more with visual beauty than anything else because that's what's immediately present to their senses. Sometimes to appreciate uh, music and, and audio beauty is just – there is sometimes a learning that has to go into it because if – kids are hearing Gregorian chant for the first time in their lives because they don't understand it, even though it is beautiful, like they can tune it out and it can just become background noise. But to, to really get them uh, to, to experience that attraction, I think sometimes there has to be an immersion into it and an introduction to it that allows them to appreciate that beauty. Whereas visual beauty is just more immediate and they can see the skill that is before them and the the artwork and then you can explain like okay like so this is beautiful but here i can explain like the 60 different symbols that are in this one painting that represent something that'll draw you into an even deeper appreciation of it you know so i mean i know when i took my teens on visits to these parishes there was like almost an audible gasp and just an awe of an appreciation for this and so it's it definitely uh, beauty attracts everybody i don't care how young or old you are it attracts everybody and i think the youth are, are craving something true and good and beautiful in our masses and in in our in our faith now i from my experience too in youth ministry and, and especially with life teen it's kind of interesting because you know there is obviously that um I, I really do think Life Teen, you know, historically speaking, has has done an incredible job at really kind of opening young people's minds to the understanding of the Eucharist and what Mass is all about and things like mm -hmm, that. I think mm -hmm. they've done I think they've done great that way. Um, but I think like for me, it was you know I was in the Life Teen program, you know, but at the end of the day, like I needed more you know yeah. and mm -hmm. and for me especially you know going from kind of like that that experience to a a, a latin mass um seeing the the difference in reverence it all kind of clicked it was like everything that i had learned over over my time in studying the faith and learning more about it was like oh okay like cuz the i mean at least in my experience the latin the 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 life teen masses were irreverent at best yeah you know? yeah and so oh, without a doubt yeah. yeah it's almost i would compare it to like developing a palette almost you know like when you when you turn the age appropriate to whatever your country's laws are to start drinking you usually start with the cheap stuff you know boone's farm or smirnoff <laughs> ice or whatever like yeah. the stuff that's sweet but like as you develop your palate you have an appreciation for really good whiskey and scotch and yeah. bourbon and like so like to the point where you shun what your first introductions to drinking were i think it's the right. same it's 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 a weak analogy i recognize it's a weak analogy everyone okay <laughs> but it's it's my analogy and i'm sticking to it it's i think it's the same way because honestly the life teen mass is what brought me back to the faith yeah. i fell away from the me, faith me very hard and to have something that was so welcoming and so pathetically attempting to appeal to my generation's sensibilities, especially with the awful music that they chose, um, <laughs> it did appeal to me at the time because it was so different. Not because it was good, but because it was different. And it was it was something that I could kind of like rebel against my parents for. Like, ha I don't have to have the organ in my mass, mom and dad. But then, you know, as I grew... 
I was just like, man, I just, I love the organ in my mass, mom and dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it deserves pride of place, as is yeah. spoken of in the post-conciliar documents. You know, it's just like, <laughs> so does Gregorian chant. Like, it deserves pride of place. Like, sacred polyphony deserves pride of place. Like, all of these things, like, because they, they literally elevate the soul, whereas, you know... The drums and the guitars, you know, they can definitely stir up an emotional response and something that is is great, and they have the capacity to elevate. But in the context of the liturgy, it's just not the same, not appropriate. No, no, exactly, exactly. Um, that actually kind of um, brings me to um, my last my last major question. I wanted to ask you about um, and. You know, when we first when we first met at Franciscan, I yeah. remember I remember that one of the big things that we shared in common was music. It was yes, yes, you know, showbread. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I and it's it's hilarious because even now I'm I still listen to a lot of that music and um yeah, and and a, a lot of my trad friends are like. Why do you listen to that garbage? I'm like, you have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea. Of that. Like, you just don't it's get so it. good. Yeah, you just don't get it. Now, I find that in my experience that, especially in particular with metal, uh, hearing the skill, hearing the lyrics, you know, I mean, there's a there's a vast difference between modern day pop music and you know the these incredibly good guitarists like the guys in dream theater and stuff uh, dream like theater oh my goodness yes you know what i mean and and yeah. the lyric writing and all of that would you say that that kind of experience was also kind of a introduction to a more uh informed palette when it when it comes to things like like the music that you like at mass and appreciating sacred polyphony Right. Oh, definitely. Without a question, because when I when I started listening to this like heavy metal genre, it, it was difficult because when I when I began, it was just like, I don't understand what these guys are saying. And even though like the skill, especially on the drums and the guitar is insane, like I couldn't get into it because it just was so heavy, you know, that's why it's called heavy metal. Um <laughs> But, like, I, I saw, like, so, okay, so one of my wife's favorite books is called Blue Like Jazz. Yep. A, fanta a fantastic book. I, yes. I love, I love Donald Miller. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's it's a beautiful, very odd, but very beautiful story. Yeah, it's Because this is good storytelling. You know, that's part of the artwork behind it. This, it anyway, one of the quotes that my wife has used repeatedly is sometimes to love something you have to first see someone else love it. And mm. he's talking about his first experience of jazz. Like he didn't get what jazz was. He's like, it's just, it's this weird thing that doesn't really ever conclude with strong notes. Like it's not musical. And then, then he sees this man so impassioned by jazz and playing on his trumpet or something. I don't remember the context, but then he, it's like at that moment it clicked. Like sometimes to love something, you have to see someone else love it first. And so I, I had friends who listened to this music and because they had an appreciation for it, they kind of introduced me to it. And I'm like, I just don't get it. But then I would go back to it. And this is like before the days of YouTube and stuff. So I couldn't just go look it up. I had to get on like LimeWire. Yeah, yeah I, had to, <laughs> I had to look these things up on peer-to-peer -peer software back before all these copyright things came through and look up certain bands and ask them to borrow like can i borrow your cd and burn a copy of the cd yeah. <laughs> um and then like with the explosion of the internet and all of these sites that would host it like you you get an introduction to so many bands now there's some out there i definitely i wouldn't listen to because the content of their their metal is in the context of something distinctly uh, counter-cultural and against all of my like like behemoth is who i think of immediately for yeah. that like they're yeah. they're pretty hardcore into satanism yeah. yes yeah it's, it's and it's it, <laughs> and it very much comes through in their music like that's what's sad about it 
Um, even though they're incredibly talented, like I can't yeah. bring myself to listen to them. I tried, like I've, I tried to listen to them and I just can't. But then you have like the contortionist yeah. and like one of my favorite songs by the contortionist is called oscillator. And like my teens, like my teens, when they found out I listened to this music, they're like, Oh, have you heard these bands? And they're like, they just jumped all over me. And I was like, I, I have it, but let's listen to them. And we listened to oscillator in, um, one of our trips to a retreat actually <laughs> and and they were like the, it like we went from like talking and everybody was talking over each other to all of a sudden everybody was like dead quiet just experiencing this music like we weren't listening we were experiencing it because of the talent it, he said one of the teens that introduced me to it was like it's literally like you're going on a journey and then all of a sudden you're floating and you just have to kind of experience what the, anybody who's listening. If you go listen to Oscillator, you're probably going to be scandalized because it's <laughs> such a such a heavy metal song. But it yeah. is like seriously one of the most beautiful heavy metal songs I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. But you know, I'm into like I still listen to Project 86. I still uh, listen Project, to Project. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love their st- like not all of it, but like some of their stuff like is great weightlifting music. Yeah. Um, I still listen to Emery. Uh, I love that they've just released a new album and it's like so freaking good. I love it. Haste the Day is like my number one go-to band. Yeah. yeah. But uh, <laughs> like for for that genre of music. But it, yeah. it's always bizarre to my friends because I I have an appreciation, a love for this music. And then on like the next second, I can turn on the classical music station or turn on Sacred Polyphony and be yeah. like, this is just in a completely different ballpark, you know. Because I would never want heavy metal or something at my mass. It's just no. it's not appropriate. And what what is appropriate is sacred music that is developed distinctly for the worship of God in the yeah. liturgy. And there's something to be said about sacred polyphony and Gregorian chant because that is sacred art. It's not just art, it's sacred art. It's something that is deliberate and intentional and in trying to lift the soul to God. And that comes through in the art form. I hope yeah. that answers the question. I, I took that, that a does. very, I took, <laughs> I took the scenic route to get there. I took yeah. about 15 minutes to get to that yeah. point because I, <laughs> I love great. that music so much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's true. And like there are, there's a, there's a group of us that go to our, our Latin mass and like, we're all like going to August Burns red shows, you know, oh, like, yes. <laughs> you know, and, and, but, but at the same time, we're still, you know, getting into our Sunday best and, and filing into our pews every Sunday and adoring the Lord at Latin mass, you know, and some trads are like, how can you reconcile them? Like it, what needs what, to be reconciled? Yeah. Like what, what is there that needs to be reconciled? It is, ah, <laughs> oh, I get, I don't get that. I, don't, I just yeah. don't get that mentality. It, it's it's the idea that anything modern is bad you know what i mean and i think and i and i always have to say well no that's not the case you know and you know especially i mean look at look at you know the fact that we've got so many young catholics that are using modern means to evangelize like yourself you know on on okay catholics and and catholic word of the day and all of this stuff like we're using modern means to share something that is timeless and true you know right. so just because it's not liturgical doesn't mean that it is not good, you know? Yeah. Like, I am, I would never want any of my videos to be shown in the context of liturgy. <laughs> but that's because we are, like, we can we can enjoy things beyond liturgy. Like, this, the created world before us, and we can become, I guess this kind of circles back to my main point earlier, like, we become co-creators with God by creating something true and good and beautiful in our artwork, in, in the media that we produce, in podcasts that we do. Um, if it brings someone closer to God or gives them a deeper appreciation for God and his liturgy and his church, and then that's that's good mission work right there. That's a great apostolate. That's right. That's right. Awesome. Well, my friend, uh, that pretty much brings us to the end. Um, but – as a as a bonus question for you, because you did express that you wanted a a fun question, <laughs> brain teaser, a, yeah, a, a brain teaser question as as we do in our other podcasts. I did want to ask you: Is it considered cannibalism to to eat a centaur? <sighs> I would say no. 
Because the centaur, we it's described as half man, half horse, but it has to. It must be in a completely separate genus and species from man. It's not Homo sapiens. And home, like cannibalism, by definition, is eating this uh, member of your same species. Um, so no, not, that's not to say that I would eat a centaur if they are intelligent creatures, and it has been revealed to us that they have an intellect and a will, and to some degree a soul. And I don't know if it would be an immortal soul, because now we're getting into the realm of mythology. Yeah. Man, this is getting deep. <laughs> so if, because C.S. Lewis would probably argue against me on this. And G.K. Chesterton might as well, but they, you know, G.K. Chesterton believed in fairies in his garden, and I love him <laughs> for it. You know, I love the whimsy of G.K. Chesterton. And C.S. Lewis would probably have the strongest <laughs> defense for mythological creatures existing in today's world as God created them because of, you know, the Narnia That's series. Right. So, okay, yeah, I would say, no, it's not necessarily cannibalism, but that does not make it morally right to consume them if they are intelligent creatures endowed with a soul out with a soul but an immortal soul right correct not, not, a, not a mortal soul not because... a material soul correct okay correct. okay <laughs> like my dog has like we were talking about before the podcast like bosco dies i'm not gonna see him in heaven and i'm okay with that yeah yeah so. <laughs> true that all right <laughs> but if i do see him in heaven i mean what a surprise that would be and you know my my happiness is not contingent upon that my happiness is contingent upon my experience of the beatific vision that's right so. that's right and then, and any kind of love that you receive, love. I put that in quotes because some people don't think that dogs can love. But uh, you know, any kind of affection you receive from good old Bosco, you know, it's a reflection of that love that comes from God Himself, right? Correct. So, yeah, it's Bill, that that affection. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, Billy, thanks so much for for chatting today, man. It's been so good. You're very welcome. Thank you for reaching out, Chris. It's cool to reconnect with other people doing Catholic media. We'll talk to you soon, my friend. Sure. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast. If you'd like to catch up with Billy and his work on YouTube, simply search Catholic Word of the Day or OK Catholics at youtube.com slash OK Catholics. Be sure to also follow us and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. Like us on Facebook at Theology of the Buddy and join in the fun conversations we are having over there. Have a blessed Christmas, everyone. We'll talk to you in the next one.